if we are saying that the role of philanthropy is to write checks for issues that you care about and that you think are important, then the recognition has to be given that the people with the expertise, the people with the commitment, the people with the in-depth knowledge are the people who are actually receiving these funds, not the people who are giving the funds. If we want to change the world, then we've got to be in it for our lifetime. And therefore, these periods of three years and five years will not work. If we want to solve for complex problems, then we're going to need flexibility. You can't have finite fixed line items. If we want sustainability and redundancy, right, that we solve for the issue, then we have to focus on enablers. We have to focus on capabilities. We can't be fixated on activities. And I think this is the shift which will actually also ensure that we have the right indicators of whether we've done our jobs effectively or not. And that, I think, is a journey that funders really need to take. You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR, a show featuring unlikely conversations on topics that affect our future. Hear differing perspectives from leaders and experts as they help us make sense of the most pressing issues of our time. In the last six months, philanthropist McKinsey Scott and Melinda French-Gates have changed the conversations around philanthropy globally with their emphasis on placing their non-profit partners at the center of their giving. It is no longer about whether or why the wealthy must give, even though we know that we have a long way to go on that front, especially in India. Instead, they're shining a light on how people must give. As COVID-19 swept through countries across the globe, leaving destruction and distress in its wake, philanthropy began to occupy center stage. Large foundations, wealthy individuals and everyday citizens all stepped up and gave money, they sourced oxygen and medical equipment, distributed food, and ran volunteer networks. This flurry of activity around giving and support also highlighted one key fact. That was the people and organizations working at the front lines that understood local needs and knew how best to act. They were the first responders. What also became clear was that while donors may have the money, they do not have the skills, the networks, or the understanding to serve those in need, and that we might see greater impact if donors trusted their nonprofit partners to do what is best for the communities they serve and let them decide the roadmap. This approach is called trust-based philanthropy, where the community and by extension the nonprofit partners serving them are at the front and center of the giving. And we're seeing some of this play out with the likes of leading philanthropists such as Rohini Nilikani, McKinsey Scott, and Melinda French adopting this model. This philosophy is in contrast with the dominant idea that we've been seeing over the last decade, that of strategic philanthropy, which has come to be synonymous with outcome-oriented and result-oriented philanthropy. Strategic philanthropy refers to a style of philanthropy where donors have clearly defined goals and where they work with their grantees to explore ways to achieve those goals. Success here is defined almost entirely by whether those results have been met or not. Today, we're seeing both these approaches play out side by side. And to help us unpack what they mean for the future of social impact, I have Reshma Anand and Anand Sinha. Reshma heads Hindustan Unilever Foundation, which focuses on water conservation and governance. Previously, she founded two social ventures, including an advisory firm on sustainable social responsibility and an accelerator for agriculture and artisanal micro-entrepreneurs. 
Reshma has more than 20 years of leadership experience with mission-driven non-profits, social ventures and philanthropic organizations. Our second guest today is Anand Sinha, the country advisor for the David and Dusil Packard Foundation in India. He has over 2 decades of experience in reproductive and adolescent health in India, in public health marketing, communications, market research and program management. Before joining the Packard Foundation, he worked for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. leading the integrated health initiative in bihar thank you anand and reshma for joining us it's so great to have you both here today to start of this conversation uh, could you both tell our listeners what you think is the role and responsibility of a donor in society and in achieving social progress reshma maybe we could start with you fundamentally philanthropy is it's a voluntary initiative and it is an endeavor by individuals and institutions to provide for solutions that can actually help create a better society and ensure that really no one gets left behind when it comes to what actually qualifies for dignity and quality of life for all and i think different institutions and individuals have their own barometer and their own reasons compelling motivations to do so as well it's about choosing you know a cause or a problem that you want to solve for and then defining a roadmap in terms of how you'd want to get there and i think that's broadly the role of philanthropy it's about what we're trying to do in our individual and institutional capacities to be able to make this a better world for everyone i've been trying to sort of simplify this a little bit and i think it sounds a little bit crass but it's essentially about writing checks for issues that you care about is the role of philanthropy i think philanthropy is the intersection of people who care and want to change things want to have an impact which in general is society at large that's that's something that everyone aspires to do is to create change and have a positive impact on the world but it's that intersection of people who have the means to do that in a significant way and therefore it is sort of you know saying where is it that your commitment your aspiration your interest lies in terms of what it is you want to change you pick something as a philanthropist and i think i'm thinking of it probably more as a private philanthropist as a private philanthropy but i think this applies to anyone who is in the donor space or in the funding space it's that intersection of you know of how do you sort of you know apply your resources and the considerable means that you have to issues that you are committed and care about given that you all have outlined you know how you all see the role of funders and philanthropists Reshma I know that organization that you are part of Hindustan Unilever Foundation you'll have this very strategic approach right to philanthropy saying how can we make it result oriented how do we make it outcome oriented would you like to kind of explain um, the this concept of philanthropy as you know y'all practice it and what are you seeing like the benefits to this kind of a model often the mismatch between the ambition and the method of giving are the reasons why we see a lot of like stress and tension in the sector as well right and i think that you know this is really where it's important as institutions as funders as well for us to kind of recognize that you know what is it that we want to actually solve for and therefore our means of providing for resources and support to individual actors and institutions are those aligned so when we set out 11 years ago we knew very little about the space of water but what we recognized was that we needed to participate meaningfully with other stakeholders who are far more invested you know whether it's government or communities in the issue and therefore we had to actually define a space for ourselves right like what can we effectively contribute one of the key things that emerged was that 
Our business DNA has actually trained us to do things at scale. And so a lot of conversations with our partners was, you've done this well. What is your definition of scale? Not just an operational definition of scale, numbers of you know structures and villages and people and all. Those are metrics that can actually be abused very effectively. But as organizations, when would they be convinced that they've solved for the issue and now they're reasonably redundant? And I think that conversation really prompted very different pathways in which we could support organizations that are working on the issue of water. And when I say that various ways, it's as simple as codifying solutions that work so that everybody's not reinventing the wheel. It's bringing in very strong digital capabilities, which are strong enablers for people who are very close to the ground and need complex data to take decisions. It's about looking at models that can actually be replicated you know, which are more market-based, right? But to do them at scale with the kind of methods that, you know, business teams can actually support and bring together, right? It's about, again, looking at human capabilities and how do you actually equip and skill people who are at the front line? It's really about moving from activities, how many structures are you doing and how many farmers are you working with, to shifting gears and saying, how are you actually enabling the key actors in this issue, which is citizens, government, and markets, and how are we making sure that there is this cohesion in the way different actors are actually trying to solve for the issue of water. So I think for us, that's really been the journey. And simply put, what's in the way? As an organization, as a mission-driven organization in the water space, you know, what's your roadblock, right? Within your organization and in the larger sector that you play in. And we've always asked ourselves, how do we help remove these bottlenecks? How do we remove these roadblocks? Uh, Anand, the Packard Foundation has, you know, over the years moved to a slightly different approach, right? Uh, something that, you know, is now known as a trust-based approach. So would you like to kind of speak a bit to that and explain what that means? Because again, it's a term that's being thrown about very extensively across the world. It's important to recognize that this is not an either-or situation here. I think, you know, the strategic philanthropy that Rishma has talked about is very much part of the DNA of even the Packard Foundation. It is sort of uh, an anchoring philosophy. I think our exploration and our recognition of trust-based philanthropy is something that we are sort of studying and trying to become more mindful about. I think one thing to recognize is that trust-based philanthropy is not new. It's a term that's new, but it's something that we've always been doing. And that is the role of philanthropy itself, is to find partners, is to find and enable partners who you believe have the vision, the capabilities, hand them the resources with actually very low levels of accountability in terms of the flexibility that's provided for them to use it. I think some of the interpretations of trust-based philanthropy is sort of like, you know, boundless quantities of unrestricted funding that is, you know, for multiple years and it's easy. And that's probably one side of the spectrum, but it's not just about the funding. I think it's a lot to do with also the philosophy that it's about trying to find and work with partners who have a commitment and a deep understanding. Because I think just going back to what you know, I said in the previous question about what is the role of philanthropy, if we are saying that the role of philanthropy is to write checks for issues that you care about and that you think are important, then the recognition has to be given that the people with the expertise, the people with the commitment, the people with the in-depth knowledge are the people who are actually receiving these funds, not the people who are giving the funds, right? The people who are giving the funds have the funds, but they don't have the expertise, they don't have the insights, they don't necessarily have that level of commitment that people who are actually receiving the funds and can affect change do have. 
how do you go about building that relationship, right? So that it is not seen as a financial business-based kind of a relationship. How do you build that relationship that is truly empowering, that is truly sort of lending the space and, and handing over the voice and handing over controls to the recipients? Is what one is exploring in this sort of area of trust-based philanthropy Trust-based philanthropy is a lot about consistency of having a relationship. So you're trying to have sort of, you know, again, relationships that last for a long period of time. I think that's something that many foundations aspire to. It's not a lazy giving away of money in, in, in that sort of way that says, you know, do what you want with it. I mean, I think the other term that we've been using with trust-based philanthropy is power sharing. It is about how do you equate that balance of power? Because the power dynamics in philanthropy are severe. It is really does emanate in downward flows. You know, someone's got the money, someone's telling us what to do, and so I'm going to write a grant for it, and so they're going to give me money, and I'm accountable to them, upward flow, etc. How do you make that vertical relationship into something that is more equal and horizontal? I think it requires a significant change in the ways that we do business and in the ways that we sort of, you know, try and hold each other accountable. And that means that the mindfulness of those who have resources, the funders, needs to be really, really heightened to think about each and everything you do. And how does that power thing play out? Because it's a constant factor. I mean, I think it's something that we're always trying to figure out is how do you become respectful? How do you become more, you know, inclusive? How do you give space? How do you give voice? two partners. And I think it's sort of different means and ways of doing that more than anything else. But as I'm saying, just because this program's called On the Contrary, it does not mean it is contrary to strategic giving at all. Okay, it is very much part of that same spectrum. You've also seen limitations and downsides of this approach. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, where does it not work entirely? I think it assumes a strong relationship and it assumes that there is the basis of trust. So it's like everyone comes in and says, well, I want to be a trust-based grantee. I want to you know, receive funds. And, and it's like, well, no, you need to build that trust and you need to earn that trust, right? And you need to earn that trust both ways. It's not just the recipient who has to earn the trust. As a donor, as a funder, I know I need to earn the trust of my grantees so that they can actually tell me what they're feeling, what they're seeing, what they're hearing. And it's not a pretentious relationship, which is based on reporting. That's hard. It's not something that comes easily and it's not something that, you know, happens by itself. There is a business model to philanthropy that exists, which trust-based philanthropy and power sharing disrupts a little bit and it's not always easy to do. Point in case is when we approach many of our grantees and say, look, we're thinking, you know, we've known you guys and we've worked with you guys for a long time. We like what you do. We think we're, you know, strategically very aligned, our values, et cetera. We want to give you, you know, flexible money, general support grant, et cetera. So, you know, write us a proposal. And the idea is that, you know, write us a proposal now based on what is the vision of the organization and the funder will support that, right? That's it. The funder is not telling you what the objectives are and what you're going to do and, you know, where we want those funds to go. Many grantees will still come back with the same proposal they wrote us in the last cycle, which was very programmatic based. This is my log frame. These are the outcome indicators. This is what the funder wants, X, Y, Z, and this so I'm going to submit that proposal. And it's like you read the proposal and you say, no, but this is sort of like just reflecting what we talked about three years ago or four years ago, right? What is it that, you know, you as an X, Y, Z grantee want to do? Where do you see if this, you know, pot of money just suddenly lands on your bank account, where is it you would go on your own? That direction is not always well formed for all partners. For some it is. I will not say that. I think there are some people who are very clear, you know, who have their rainy day ideas in the back of their head all the time. It's like, the minute I get some money, I know exactly what I want to do with it and I will go and run with it. But I think it also assumes that there's a risk of failure and we live with a significant risk of failure because sometimes these relationships 
are disingenuous, right? They're not true. People are sort of reading, you know, what the funds are like, how much accountability comes with it. Is it easy to sort of use it in various ways? And I think when you're trying to practice trust-based philanthropy, you will also limit the questions that you ask and how hard you push people for answers on various things. So it becomes a very polite dance. And in that polite dance, if everyone is not upfront, et cetera, then it can become quite messy. You know, all philanthropy is trust-based. We're all taking a leap of faith, including when you go and donate at a place of worship. You're not going to ask the powers that be to send you a utilization statement on whether your wishes were fulfilled or not. So again, when we look at the world of giving, there's no collateral, there's no share of the organization. In most cases, there are no board seats either. If you ask me, we have no control. Once the check is gone, the money's gone, you know, that's the end of it. What are you going to chase with reports? Are you going to chase with auditors? What purpose does it actually serve? Right. So I, I do believe that fundamentally, and this is, a, I think, again, a very important value to build in the industry overall, that if you're going to be in the space of giving and receiving, taking this leap of faith and trust is going to be almost like a non-negotiable, right? Uh, because otherwise, we're just going to complicate our lives with reporting and acrimonious relationships and all of that, which actually does not serve the larger purpose of why we've come together. So I feel that there's an intrinsic element of trust and it plays itself out in different ways. So I think a large part of this is really about recognizing that why are we getting together? We're getting together because intrinsically we're aligned to actually solve for a certain issue, right? So the why should be consistent between the two parties. The how has to be the mandate of the institution that's closest to the ground and is actually more well-versed with what it's going to take. And I think it's the how that funders need to get out. The idea that you kind of fund pivotal spaces for your partners that's really going to set them up for long-term strength and success. I think those are the spaces that become really interesting. They're also messy, and Anand actually alluded to them, right? How do you, for example, define the returns on organizational development? Let's say you did provide for that. Or, you know, in building digital capabilities, or in actually setting up like an entire team of like paraprofessionals that didn't exist before, right? So I think those are, again, elements where you're saying we're going into uncharted territory and we're willing to learn jointly from that experience as well. Anybody who believes that they will be able to use reporting and, you know, data as a surrogate for trust, <laughs> I'm not sure it's going to happen, right? One has to basically come to a place with purposes aligned, methods and means have to be left to the organizations who've dedicated their entire lifetime to kind of address some of these issues. And I think the question that funders should ask is, where do I play a meaningful role to the cause and to the institution? You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR. We'll be right back after this break. Most of us don't like to fail. And so we try and avoid it at all costs. But failure is natural, and there can be no success without it. In fact, it teaches us invaluable lessons about what not to do and how to make things right. IDR's new podcast, Failure Files, puts stories of failure front and center, where you can listen to candid perspectives and lessons from social entrepreneurs working on some of the world's toughest problems. Listen and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app. And now, 
back to the show. Welcome back, Anand and Reshma. We know that both of your foundations have supported a range of organizations through the years. So I want to ask, and this question is addressed to the both of you, do funders have to go on a journey before they become strategic givers or trust-based givers? Similarly, do non-profits have to be at a particular stage of their evolution? And when I say evolution, I don't necessarily mean the number of years they've been around, but more in terms of their thinking and how they approach their work. And what happens to those who don't fit in to either of the two approaches that you have? I would say that, you know, we're very focused on one issue. And when you're focused on a particular issue, which in our case is water security, we might pan out in adjacencies, but, you know, there's almost like this invisible line, right? So I think that it's a defining boundary for us. I think the second challenge also is that it does require organizations that have self-awareness, right? They've actually kind of gone on their own journey saying, do we want to be in this constant hamster wheel of this endless churn of proposals? Or do we actually want to build an institution that has strong underlying assets? And those assets could be our people, could be the tools, could be our relationships, could be our way of working with government, could be about capacity building. And this is scale and size agnostic, right? We work with small organizations that are extremely powerful in the way they engage with local government at a grassroots level. And we've got organizations that have the power and the capacity to convene a large number of organizations in the sector. And I think, again, the power, I'd say, of strategic philanthropy is that size is no bar. It's really about helping organizations, regardless of their vintage and regardless of their skill, to actually recognize, do they have an underlying asset which is under-leveraged? And can we help the organization really deploy their strengths to their full capacity? So I think it works very well at an individual organizational level. We're still trying to figure out how this works effectively in building partnerships. We're still trying to figure out how this can work in terms of maybe even mobilizing an entire sector and industry. We're still to cover that journey, but I've seen this play out really well. And it's hard work. One of the ways in which we get a taste of our own medicine is how partners also push back and say, you know, why should we do this, right? Like, what's the purpose of all of it? Why should we be investing in it? It's really hard. For example, there was a lot of pushback on digitizing data systems. But COVID actually created that flip because they realized that it's it's actually an enabler. It's helping them do their work on the ground very effectively and also in almost like real-time basis. So the kind of agility and responsiveness that's required can be done. So it's quite fascinating that a classic program call for proposals gets a lot of response. But if you say, hey, you know, would you like to kind of figure out how to design your organization for the future? Are there competencies that you'd love for your organization to build, right? Is there a visioning piece that you would like to do? And there's a little bit of hemming and hawing that we kind of get to hear as well. But I do believe that the last two years have been extremely disruptive in a good way as well. Because there's a greater consciousness amongst organizations that all of this is as valuable as just getting a grant for program implementation. So that's happening. That shift is something that we're also seeing slowly, but it's happening. I think it assumes a certain journey and level of maturity on both sides. And, and, you know, and I think Reshma pointed that out, you know, is that the journey is probably a little bit longer on the funder's side. 
because the changes that need to happen internally with funders in terms of their own sort of evolution of how they think of how you know they think of accountability what is management of grants and grantees etc that's still a journey that even for us even for the packet foundation we are still on to me it's a little bit of an evolutionary sort of in your own learning process as a funder it is something that hopefully evolves over time as you become more comfortable with that role it's something that's hard to do overnight and i will say you know i think there is tremendous pushback at times internally as well saying just a minute i know exactly what needs to be done i know exactly where these funds need to go i know exactly the partners to do this why do you want me to now let go of that why do you want me to now dilute all of that and say hey i'm going to like you know give this all away and it's all about trust based philanthropy etc cetera, etc cetera, right when i'm so sure about it so that journey is a really difficult one for funders to cross over into because that's the mindset that we come from and not speaking for everyone but many times that's what i've noticed and i know that that's been a personal journey for me as well is when we're on the brink of sort of you know making those flexible grants and unrestricted funding etc cetera, etc cetera, it's like but i know what we want them to do it's hard to let go of that kind of a thing on the funder side on the grantee side i think it's as reshma saying i think there needs to be you know a clear sort of conversation that's happening internally that's really sort of scraping at what is it that i want what is it that i feel for what is it that i'm committed to where is it that i think i'm best placed to change then really requires an inward look and a reflection point rather than trying to respond all the time to the bars that other people have set for you right the hurdles that other people have set for you and so you'll build those muscles and say okay i'm going to jump over these hoops that funders or whoever else has set for me versus saying i'm here and i can decide what it is that i'm best suited to do and you know what it is that i'm most committed to doing we don't always have the space to do that we don't always have the luxury to do that i mean again personal reflection when i've worked in implementing organizations and those kinds of spaces and if you got suddenly pot of money as i'm saying you know to do this right it's like no this is my job right my job is to implement a certain project plan and to figure out how to get from point a to b point a to b is defined by someone else i figure out how to navigate from point a to b but how do you now say okay now you figure out what is point a and what is point b in that sort of journey is flipping the table and does require a certain i think maturity and level of commitment so i don't think it's for everyone necessarily or from that sort of frame it's for funders who are interested in building institutions as reshma is saying in building movements right in building momentum and not necessarily about counting service delivery and counting impact and counting those kinds of outcomes as the only outcomes that you're interested in in terms of creating sustainability of civil society as a tool to development is important it's a tool that you have to build it's a tool that you have to you know support right and who's doing that i think therefore the focus on civil society is not just you know the these great partners who will deliver these amazing outcomes etc but just i think just thinking about who will actually sit down and build that and that's one of the changes we've seen dramatically in india in philanthropy in the last couple of years i think just that recognition that you know that is a support that's needed at least we're beginning to talk about that thanks anand it's interesting to hear you both say that it's not the size of the nonprofit but the dna in a sense and more importantly the maturity of the organizations both on the giving and the receiving side that shapes how this plays out i'd like to move a bit now to the question that all donors and their nonprofit partners ask of themselves is the work they're doing in supporting really creating impact in the approaches that both your organizations have taken how do you measure progress How do you understand where the change is happening on the ground? Could you speak a bit to that? So I would put this in two very clear categories. One is the kind of let's say markers that get you the license to do what you're doing. 
And Anand talked about the fact that even if, let's say, if money is flexible or unrestricted, it's actually coming with a lot of strings internally because there's a fair bit of stakeholder engagement that that we have to do as funders. So I think there is a set of markers that just build overall confidence that the programs are doing well or the institutions are doing well. And each foundation, I'm sure, funders have their own set of indicators. We do as well. And a lot of it is focused on, you know, what's the volumetric you know, capacity of water that we've generated. But we also take that number with enormous humility, because I think it's not just about the numerator, it's about knowing what is your denominator. And if you shift your denominator to population, if you want to solve a problem at population scale, it's the most humbling thing you can do as a funder, because that number that looked very large now suddenly looks fairly modest. So one is just in terms of making sure that you don't lose the plot yourself in the pursuit of certain markers of what you believe is success and what our stakeholders also believe is success. But I think there are other very clear indicators. And I think, again, we look at, do we have actually very, very vibrant vocal communities? Is there agency in communities to actually solve for these issues? Are program teams extremely wired and animated where nobody's seeking permission to speak? Has there been a significant economic shift that we can see over a period of time? If you've done work with a certain density and with a certain efficacy, this is something that you don't have to down send a surveyor to figure out whether that change has happened, right? So I think there are a set of markers that build stakeholder confidence that this is a cause worth pursuing and this is a way of working that's worth pursuing. But I also believe we need to look out for whether, you know, organizations are thriving, whether communities have agency whether you know teams on the ground are extremely animated, whether the issue is something that's actually gaining a lot of traction, whether we're solving for some of these challenges at scale, whether those stubborn indicators that no one wants to talk about are actually moving for the better. It might seem a bit of a, a balancing act, but this is something that we have to do. So there is this whole get your license to do what you're doing, but at the same time also understand that the denominator is going to always put you in a really humbling place. Therefore, are you seeing significant energy and momentum in your communities, in your organizations, in the sector, in the media, on the issue, within government as well? And I think that's the long game, which is why I keep coming back to this point around the mismatch between ambition and the method of giving is really sometimes the core issue. It's not whether we're doing long, unrestricted grants or we're doing strategic philanthropy or, you know, we're doing activity funding. If we want to change the world, then we've got to be in it for our lifetime. And therefore, these periods of three years and five years will not work. If we want to solve for complex problems, then we're going to need flexibility. You can't have finite fixed line items. If we want sustainability, and redundancy, right, that we solve for the issue, then we have to focus on enablers, we have to focus on capabilities, we can't be fixated on activities. And I think this is the shift which will actually also ensure that we have the right indicators of whether we've done our jobs effectively or not. And that, I think, is a journey that funders really need to take. Thanks, Reshma. Anand, how do you think of this bit of measuring impact? especially when it comes to funding civil society institutions that are public goods, where the outcomes are harder to measure and harder to quantify. So there's a couple of thoughts I have, which are divergent thoughts, in fact, on the question of measurement. One is that I don't think that you necessarily have to look at the question of measurement differently for trust-based philanthropy. I think you have the same sets of, you know, objectives and outcomes that you're looking at. Because trust-based philanthropy is 
is a value, is a relationship, but the outcomes that you're looking for are the same. Where we aspire and where maybe trust-based philanthropy helps is to sniff a little bit deeper underneath those numbers. I mean, I think, you know, oftentimes I hear this and I've said this a lot, you know, I think a lot of our frameworks of monitoring and of data and of impact are, are like feeding this upward monster. It's like someone has to be given these numbers upstairs and they keep on going up. And, you know, that's that's your sort of positive story that you have to tell. And so we do that work. And that also helps us understand that we're making progress. But it's never the real, it's never like the complete picture. Recent case in point, we've had the National Family Health Survey results, you know, recently come out, show dramatic improvements in many indicators, including reproductive health, maternal health. As far as, you know, we are as a philanthropy that has invested in women's health in Bihar and UP for so many years, it's like, yes, we've done it, job done, right? The conversations we're having with some of our longer standing partners, well, how did we get there? How did we see these incredible results come about? That's the flavor that one hopes to get when you have a relationship and when you have a commitment towards the change and not just towards the numbers, right? When you have a commitment towards the actual outcomes and the way that you want it. We've been thinking a lot about the fact that how do you actually ask the community to give you feedback on your grantees, right? Have we funded the right partners? Have we given, you know, the resources to the right people? The measurements that we will typically do is to say that we will ask the community that has your indicators improved, right? Do you have more water? Do you have better health? Do you have better access to XYZ? That's the outcome. But do you ask them, well, does XYZ partner respect you? Does XYZ partner think about you? Do you think XYZ partner is doing the work that they should? And actually think of them as a customer to seek customer feedback. I mean, I think that's the other thing that, you know, we haven't, we're getting there a little bit and that's happening a little bit in terms of how we're thinking about accountability and sort of looking at community feedback, et cetera. But how do you really move that in our settings of, you know, low resources and uh, low levels of education, how will people respond? How will people make a judgment? But they will, right? You know that they will. You know that they can say these things as long as they can identify who you're asking and what you're asking about. I guess the other impact is, this is one that many people do measure, and I know that we put a lot of emphasis on it, is like, are you creating champions? Are you creating voices, right? Because the investment, again, in civil society is about, you know, implementers, but it's also about finding those champions. It's about finding those people who will sustain and continue these initiatives even beyond the check, right? I mean, I think the true magic lies in terms of what happens beyond the check, beyond the value and beyond the duration of that grant. And if those champions are being created and fed and nudged and, and supported in the ways that uh, they can, then I think that's one of the strongest measures that we tend to look at um, in terms of saying, are we seeing the sustenance of these sorts of relationships beyond our funding? There seems to be so much to learn when it comes to philanthropy. And both of you have touched upon a number of crucial points. But if I were to summarize our discussion today, what I'm taking back is that first and foremost, real philanthropy is about power sharing. Funders need to understand that both expertise and knowledge lies within the organizations they fund. So they must trust the recipient while also earning their trust. And that actually all philanthropy is trust-based philanthropy. At the end of the day, the funder and the organization being funded need to embark on a journey together they need to take this leap of faith that enables them to move beyond a relationship solely based on reporting and numbers, and instead focus on the larger purpose of creating a just and equitable world where no one is left behind. Thank you, Reshma. Thank you, Anand, once again, for an outstanding and thought-provoking conversation. Thank you for listening to On the Contrary by IDR. I'm Swaranita Shetty 
co-founder and CEO of IDR, an online journal that publishes cutting-edge ideas and insights, written by and for people working on some of India's toughest problems. We believe that knowledge has the power to drive change, and our platform serves as a stage for underserved topics, unheard voices, and the counter-narratives that are crucial to achieving social progress. To learn more about the ideas featured on this podcast, as well as the latest thinking on social impact, visit our website, www.idronline.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. On the Contrary is produced by Rachita Vora, Smarnita Shetty, and Shreya Adhikari. This episode was hosted by Smarnita Shetty. Production by Made in India.